Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Pagans Tonight Radio Network, the voice of the pagan world. Pagans Tonight is sponsored by Witchschool.com, your anyone, anytime, anywhere magical education. This is Matthew Sidney, and you're listening to Walking the Unnamed Path, where we discuss the traditions of the Unnamed Path, a spiritual, shamanic, and magical tradition for men who love men, and where we talk about the unique contributions of queer men, men who love men, to the spiritual healing of humanity. Uh, Unfortunately, my co-host, Michael Graywolf, was not able to join us today. Uh, He'll be back, uh, I do believe, our next episode. But today with me, I do have um, fellow Unnamed Path Initiates, David Shorey and Chase Powers. And today we have the privilege of speaking with a very special guest. Uh, Andrew Raymer is the best known to us, perhaps, as the author of Two Flutes Playing. In our tradition, uh, our understanding is that when Hyperion read uh, Two Flutes Playing many, many moons ago, it inspired him to begin the process of shamanic journeys, wherein he sought out these ancestors of men who love men, where he sought out these spirits of the queer shamanic practitioners and healers from days gone by in order to ask them, what can we do today? These ancestors, the ancestors of men who love men, then helped him develop the tradition that we practice today. Andrew Raymer uh, is also uh, the author of Queering the Text, Biblical, Medieval, and Modern Jewish Stories, and Revelations for a New Millennium. In 1990, Harry Hay, who we do believe also stands among our ancestors of men who loves men, a renowned gay rights activist, blessed Andrew Raymer as a younger elder of the tribe. Thompson, another activist and author who also dances with our ancestors, interviewed him for his 1994 book, Gay Spirit along with 15 other writers, healers, teachers, and visionaries. Most recently, Andrew Raymer was our keynote speaker at Stone and Stang 2018. I'm going to go ahead and bring Andrew onto the air. Andrew, thank you for joining us today. Um, David and Chase, you're both also live on the air as well. Um, first, I'd like um, Andrew, I spoke a little bit about you, but I want to hear in your words. Briefly, tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are. Well, thank you first for inviting me. It was joyous to go off on a retreat with a group of you in an incredibly beautiful place and to spend four days deepening into presence and spirit with our ancestors, and I'm delighted to be here. I don't quite know how to answer the question except to say that at age three, I had incredibly vivid memories of multiple past lives and heard voices and sort of things that I suspect that all children see, hear, and remember. But I often like to say that I was very poorly socialized. And so 
the kind of cultural overlay that I should have gotten that would have eradicated all of that was faulty in my case. And so some of that information slipped through. And it was terrifying when I realized what I was doing was culturally inappropriate, but I couldn't stop, or it didn't stop. And at some point in the late 60s and early 70s, I began to accept this is who and what I am, a person who listens, a person who receives information, and a person whose job it is to share. So I made a commitment to do that in the late 60s, and I've been doing it ever since. My journey as a gay man shapes and informs what I do, and the fact that my earliest primary teachers were all lesbians wraps around that. So I think I move in multiple domains with multiple perspectives, but my path is one of supporting all of our evolution in this really frightening time. Yeah. Well, thank you. And we have a lot more to discuss with you. Before we do that, I do want to take a moment to honor today's uh, co-host, um, Chase Powers. You've been on the show before, but for the benefit of listeners who may be new, will you please tell us a little bit about you? Um, sure. I've been an initiate in the Indian Path since around 2011, uh, studied under Hyperion uh, before he passed. Um, I'm also a teacher in the tradition. Um, and um, let's see, uh, I'm a student of a couple of other magical traditions. Um, uh, I study Anderson Ferry and also am a student of uh, Kemetic Orthodoxy. Um, and yeah, I do a lot of I do a lot of magical and social work in my local community and, you know, try to support people where I can, as well as in, in, uh, indulging in my uh, favorite pastime of fighting with people who are wrong on the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm guilty of enjoying that sport, too. Um, <laughs> David Shorey, um, you've also been... Um, a co-host on the show before and a guest, um, but for listeners who may, who may be new, please tell us a little bit about who you are. Um, well, I am also an initiate, brother initiate of the Unnamed Path, um, studying, um, I was the third initiate um, and um, was initiated in 2009. Um, and I also am a student of Harry Searship with Orion Foxwood, and a student of Druidry, um, Celtic spirituality. Um, I live in California near Lake Henshaw, and I'm now currently surrounded by barking dogs, which you may hear in the background, so I do apologize for that. <laughs> well, thank you, and we won't hold you responsible for the for the barking dogs. Um, you know, <laughs> perhaps we can blame Hecate for that. Um, and, and I say that lovingly. Um, so, I know I heard her. She's like, uh huh. I mean that with the utmost affection. Um, so, uh, thank you guys for coming on. And, um, Andrew, not to put you on the system, make you feel uncomfortable, but uh, you're chatting with uh, 
three men who have all studied uh, two flutes playing and not only studied two flutes playing, but studied it within the context of this being um, part of the foundation of what has evolved into um, a unique uh, spiritual tradition uh, for queer men. Um, and I guess, you know, I'll, I'll go with this question, and that is um, when you were working on that book so many moons ago, um, did you have any idea of uh, what would come out of it, of this, uh, this reaction and, and what would evolve from that? I didn't have a clue that it would ever be a book. And as the book is evolving toward its fourth incarnation as a published object, I read it again for the first time since 2005, and it was interesting to read it both as the person who received all that information and as a person who worked for many years in publishing as an editor. And the book is something of a marvelous mess. It wasn't ever intended to be a book. It was lots of pieces of paper that someone assembled together and made four copies of and gave them to four friends who passed them out to other people and one eventually wandered out to the West Coast and arrived in the hands of Joseph Kramer, the founder of the Body Electric School, who contacted me and said, I want to publish this. So it got turned into a spiral-bound book without anyone really sitting down and saying, darling, this could be edited. So it's a floppy book. It's flawed. It's itself. In that regard, I suppose it's very human. Did I have a clue that it would ever be a book? No. Did I have a clue as to its impact? No. Someone who I can't remember who it was said, write the book you want to read. And on a certain level, that's what I was doing. I was living on the edges of lesbian communities, listening to women talk about goddess, talk about spirit. And I wasn't hearing men do that. And I wasn't hearing gay men do that. And that's when the door opened in me to start writing down these channeled messages all of that so changed with the coming of AIDS. And that became, for so many men who love men, a doorway back to spirit. But it's not a book I would probably write now. And yet I love it. I suppose, like any parent, one can look soberly and tenderly at the flaws of one's children and say, I'm so glad you're in the world. Um, as as you mentioned, the the book was channeled. Are you still in contact with any of the beings from whom you channeled those parts of the book? They're all at one remove at this point. I I don't know if you remember, like sometimes, and I, this probably still happens, but you would walk into a public bathroom and someone would have scrawled on a tiler on the wall, for a good time, call so-and-so and their phone number. And I mm -hmm. feel like in the spirit world, I was sort of that person. Someone scrolled my name and number on a bathroom wall, and all kinds of beings wanted to talk to me. 
at a time when that wasn't very common. And so every once in a while, some of them pop up. But as my education continued from the time when I really opened up to channeling in 1976, I have evolved from what I would say talking to dead people to talking to angels more often. So one particular angel who was mentioned in the book and helped to weave the pieces together still hangs out from time to time. You know, we exchange emails. I don't do texts very often, but we text sometimes. (laughs) So there is a certain level of communication, but they're probably talking to other people. Mm. Now, of course... Oh boy, um, I'll neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> um, of course, uh, a lot has happened since uh, you composed Two Flutes Playing and, and you've had your journey. Um, and I want to give you the opportunity. I'm interested in hearing about uh, what you're working on now, um, what projects are on the table for you now. And, and also, please, for the benefit of our listeners, tell them. Um, uh, what what does your mission look like now? Is are, are there any new books in the works? I sent off about a week ago the final electronic draft of a new book, which is called Fragments of the Brooklyn Talmud. And when I was working on Two Flutes Playing, if you had told me, you know you're going to grow up and convert to Judaism, which is my ancestral faith, but was not a part of my life, I would have laughed in your face. So the fact that life took me on a journey back into my Jewishness is relevant in terms of my current work and deeply relevant at this moment in terms of the horrific shooting in a synagogue yesterday in Pittsburgh. As I've gotten older, I've become increasingly aware that this body that my soul co-occupies is a Jewish body. So my last four books have all been focused on Jewish text as a gay man, looking at text as a gay man whose earliest teachers were all lesbian feminists. So the next book, Fragments of the Brooklyn Talmud, is in a genre that I love to call when people ask what I write and I say, I write queer feminist speculative fiction theology. Which I could say again, queer (laughs) feminist speculative fiction theology, a very large section, as you know, in your local bookstore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So (laughs) it will be out sometime next year. It comes from a really wonderful press up in Eugene, Oregon called Whip and Stock and it'll be out there if that's something that interests you the blurb of the book would be I have imagined that about 80 years from now when you cannot go outside without a breathing mask when a sixth of the population of the world has died from something like AIDS but way worse when sea levels have risen all over and most of the coastal cities of the whole planet have had to be evacuated. A group of rabbis, many of them queer, a word they may not use 80 years from now, gather together in Brooklyn to create a new 
compendium of commentary on Jewish sacred texts, but they don't get to finish it. And 80 years after that, someone finds a laptop buried under water that has fragments of it. That's the book I wrote. So if that's wow. up your alley, stay tuned. Many of the cast of characters are queer. Many of the texts embedded in it are, but not all. But I feel well, like... Actually, I... My, hmm? I was just gonna say, as you were just as you were describing it, I got a, a moment of chills. So uh, uh, I consider that a good sign. So yeah, I'm very keenly interested in in this story. Thank you. I, I hope you will enjoy it when it comes out in the world. And for me, it's a further step in that so much of two flutes playing and so much of my early training. So much of my conversations with Harry Hay years ago happened in the midst of the height of the AIDS epidemic. And the world looked really awful then. But to me, it looks way worse now. And what I find hopeful is that in those early years, no one in government could talk about what was going on. No one could deal with it. And so all around the world, groups of gay men and our lesbian sisters gathered together in communities to create clinics, medical research, hospices, hospitals, care, food supply at a level that the government didn't come anywhere near. And it radically changed AIDS from an absolute death sentence to now I talk to young men who heard about it, but they don't really know what it was like to walk down the street and to see everywhere you went in every city in this country emaciated gay men and other people, but predominantly gay men, covered with lesions, walking with canes and dying. That was such a part of the urban landscape of this country, and it isn't any longer. People pop a pill. And that very same journey of possibility is what we, as men who love men, need to resource on ourselves because the world is in way worse shape now. The environment is terrible. The political situation is terrible. What happened in Pittsburgh is just one tiny little moment of a whole chain of people, but particularly men destroying the planet and killing each other. And so we men who love men have a very different doorway into masculinity and possibility. And that, to me, is our work right now. Mm. Yeah, Andrew. I, uh, I, in advance of the show, I received uh, quite a few questions from listeners um, that I'd like to to run by you. But before we get to that, I do want to pass the baton um, over to Chase. Um, if you would please, um, you know, do you have any questions uh, for Andrew uh, right now? 
Um, you know, I do actually. As as a teacher in the Indian Path, you know, one of the one of the required readings that we do for our students um, is two flutes playing. Um, it's sort of a uh, it's sort of a touchstone for us in terms of you know making sure that we're all, even though now there are some of us all over the world, um, uh, that we all kind of have a, a common ground, a touchstone to you know go back to. Um, and you know, I get a lot of questions from my students about um, who some are as young as you know 21, some I have had who are in their 60s and 70s, um, and you know, they talk about some of the things that are in the book as being like, wow, you know, the specifically talking about the the age crisis, how um, the the book talks about it being a um, an educational opportunity i think uh and they have often asked you know how how is this how is this educational how how can this be an educational thing you know hundreds of thousands millions of us have died how is this a how is this a teachable moment um so i'm kind of curious what your what your perspective on that would be good question i'm glad we have 14 hours to sit there and chat. In brief, what the book says is that men who love men have certain archetypal powers that are different from the archetypal powers of women who love women or men who love women or all kinds of other communities of people who are tribal in the way that gay men are tribal, that we are a people who are not biological. You know, some of us may have had gay parents, but most of us didn't. So the people, the guides, the beings who wrote two foods playing, we talk about the deaf nation, the blind nation, as a people, as a group of people, all of whom have different archetypal skills. Mm-hmm. And so one of the archetypal skills of men who love men is that we're midwives for the dying. And as I look out at all the probability strands of reality, I don't think AIDS was inevitable any more than environmental destruction was inevitable. But when it happened it became an educational moment for men who love men. And even to this day, I notice that when I walk into hospitals, increasingly there are male nurses who are not gay men, but that's rare in the hospitals I walk into. And over the years, even before AIDS, what I saw was male nurses, very rare, holding the hands of dying relatives giving them ice chips, stroking their brow. There's something encoded in our spiritual DNA about being midwives for the dying that AIDS gave us the opportunity to explore. I hope that answers the question in some way. It does, actually. Thank you very much. I don't believe that there were higher beings that said, Oh, you know, look at those gay men down there. They need an education. What could we do to wake them up? Oh, let's send them a deadly virus. I don't yeah, think it I went that, that way, but it did I, I, give us an opportunity. 
I think that a lot of a, a great deal of my students, being that um, we do come from a heavily Christianized overculture with, you know, the angry sky father that sends you bad things because you've been naughty. Um, because a lot of us do have that sort of, you know, acculturation that a lot of my students come from that perspective of like, you know, how is this educational? Why were, why were we being punished? So yeah, that actually does that, that not only answers my question, but gives me more things to talk to my students about in the future. Well, lovely. And I think that, one of the things I like to talk about and did when we were all off together on retreat is that under the layer of spiritual binaries that we have most of us grown up in, that there's this angry sky father and this exploitable earth mother is a much more ancient and useful binary, which is that we're living on Father Earth. And Father Earth is saying things like, nope, I don't want those chemicals in my atmosphere. Oh, no, you cannot actually chop down that forest. You cannot dam up that river. You cannot build a city over there. You cannot live here. You cannot strip mine that entire mountain. No, no, no. And so in my understanding, and this appears in little parts of Two Flutes, one of the jobs of gay men is that we were the guardians of the trees. And if someone wanted to cut down a tree, they had to come up to one of us, and we would talk to the tree elders who would say, sorry, can't use that tree, or that one, or that one. You can use three of those over there, but you have to plant 14 new you know, seedlings. So it's useful at times to remember what happened when we traded in Father Earth for Mother Earth, and what happened when we traded in God the Mother for God the Father. God the Mother who we're never separate from, who's created us out of her body, rather than having to speak us into existence with words or make us out of clay. So they're still binaries, but they're useful to remember that they're at the base level of human consciousness. Hmm, that's a very interesting perspective. Thank you. I, that actually provokes a question that I have. Um, I, it might be an interesting conversation. This is actually a question for my fellow Unnamed Path brothers. Um, but, Andrew, please feel free um, to chat with us uh, because I do remember uh, reading in Two Flutes playing uh, the talk of Father Earth uh, and of uh, Mother Goddess, and uh, that being a, a recurring theme in the book. And Unnamed Path has its own, uh, I guess you could say, unique theology. Um, I've explored my own relationship between these two filters, if you will, or these two um, different understandings of relating to deity and our relationship to, do, to deity. But I was curious... Um, if you guys had uh, any explorations into that. Uh, well, this is David. Um, I would say that, um, you know, the, the focus of our, our deities um, differ a little bit from the, 
what's usually viewed as as uh, kind of the mother goddess or father god kind of uh, aspect where um, our male deities are lovers, brothers. Um, our, the f- female deities are more in a, a place where they're not necessarily mother figures, um, more maybe best friends of us, or but at the same time have specific roles that they play within um, within our tradition and, and within our spiritual practices. And so, um, you know, within the deities, um, I always view all of them um, in the same kind of the same light of, of being um, <laughs> the lack, almost like uh, uh, traffic um, uh, directors, you know, street. Street, uh, what do I say? Tra- traffic um, guides. In that, as things come through, we work with them to get direction. We work with them to get understanding. We have a relationship with them. Um, but really, also the strong relationship that we need to build is with our ancestors um, and um, the spirit um, guides and guardians that that exist and that we develop relationships with. And so. Um, in a way, they're holding that space for us to do. Um, and while we work with them and there are um, things that we do to honor them, um, the aspect of them being an overly judgmental or overpowering entity is not how I view them uh, as much as being the guides and and, and uh, direction givers to allow us to to walk as spiritual beings having this human experience. Period. <laughs> <laughs> I just I'm just uh, making space. I want to see if anyone um, had anything else to contribute. Um, to that um, before we move on to the uh, the listener questions. Um, sure. So this is Chase. I'm sorry. So in terms of like the, the I guess the reversal of the, you know, the sky father, earth mother thing, you know, it's, it's not particularly even a new concept. Um, I know in Egyptian mythology, um, you know, they have Geb, uh, who is the earth and, uh, Newt, who is the sky, you know, the god of the earth and the goddess of the sky. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the pre-Islamic uh, cosmologies and, and mythologies, the the goddesses, the sky goddesses, because they're all cosmic goddesses, you know, Astarte. Um, so that's not uh, super new, but it is definitely something to look back at as being, you know, these are the places where human culture moved out of. You know, so while a lot of those while a lot of those cosmologies are are based around the sort of the land that they inhabited, you know, for example, in Egypt it was the earth being the god because the life giving seed, the water, came from the ground. It doesn't rain in Egypt, um, so you know from that or from the river. Um, so you would have you know the the cosmic star mother and then you know the life giving earth father. Um, 
so, you know, it is kind of good to sort of look back at those sorts of things and, and touch on those. Um, I think it's also really good for us in this sort of modern age to kind of look as, as we sort of move beyond, you know, the idea of binary um, or at least acknowledge that it's not just binary um, to look back on some of those old ways of being and old ways of relating to deity, you know, looking at creator stories and creator myths of, you know, gods who are androgynous or gods who masturbate the universe into being um, to kind of realize that it doesn't necessarily just have to be a binary in that. Um, I know that a lot of, I know that I get a lot of questions as a teacher about like, you know, how do you teach as a tradition for men who love men? You know, do you teach bisexual men? Um, how do you handle people who are non-binary or genderqueer? Um, how do you handle trans people? Um, and while oftentimes the questions for those are, I'm not sure I'll have to think about it and get back to you, you know, there are certainly, I guess, ways of looking at those to figure those answers out. That's it. <laughs> Thank you. Andrew, uh, one of our listeners um, prior to the show, when I announced who our guest was going to be, um, asked, uh, what is the process or is there a process that you have used to receive uh, the channeled information in your books? Good question. Because... I always heard things. I was at an unfair advantage, but because many people have been asking me this question, I have asked the beings that I talk to. And what I've been told again and again and again and again is that two things are essential. One needs to be absolutely comfortable in silence and with silence. One needs to spend great stretches of time alone in silence. So don't come home and put on music. Don't come home and put on television. Don't come home and turn on your devices. Wrap yourself in a cloak of silence. And two, what they've said again and again is that at every single moment we are being communicated with on multiple levels. And our society is established increasingly to distract us from that. But not everybody receives words. We live in such a wordy culture. But that may not be your way. You may receive visions. You may receive kinesthetic experiences that can't be translated into words. So it's useful to know what one's leading edge is and to avoid the distractions that are so easy. I have just been wandering through the 20th anniversary edition of uh, Pema Chodron's book, When Things Fall Apart, which mm. some of you may have read. And there is a new afterword to this 20th edition in which she says, a whole generation raised on electronic devices is getting in-depth intensive training in being distracted. So step one, 
what distracts you. Step two, what's your leading edge? Are you a person who will receive visions rather than words or both? And then start to cultivate time and a space. Build a little meditation altar. As you're drifting into sleep, begin to invoke whatever rings of guides, angels, elders, goddesses, deities, spirits are out there and just keep saying, come to me. Come to me in some way. I am now available as your scribe, secretary, the person who will jot down the images you send me. But to notice that all of us receive all of this information all the time in the same way that all of us dream every night. But how many of us wake up remembering those dreams? So that to me is the most useful thing. It's happening already. It's not how do I get there. It's how do I shift my consciousness to become aware that it's happening all the time. Thank you. And the same listener also asks, um, how do you discern the veracity of what the beings are saying to you? Also a good question, and I know from having many conversations over the years with other people who are opened in the way that I have been opened, there are a few really simple tools someone comes knocking at your door and you open the door and within a moment if you're paying attention your body contracts, your body expands you know that they're hostile you know that they've come to sell you something you don't want the phone rings and you don't recognize the number and you pick it up and in an instant you can feel You know, I don't know if people still talk about the vibe of the person but you can feel the vibe and that's the same with beings who are not physically focused. They have vibes. And it's really useful to say to someone, sorry, but I'm not available right now. Can you call back in a thousand years? So knowing that we have the power to open and close the door, to hang up the phone is important, and to trust our feeling sense. If someone is receiving words, What's really useful and has been for me is this thing that I think in the 19th century people called automatic writing, which is get a journal, write it down by hand, don't use a device, and then go back and read it. And what happens over time to people who have done this and to students of mine is you'll begin to notice when what's coming through is really clear and when you've gotten in the way. And if someone does show up, some being, it's incredibly helpful at the start to not ask really challenging questions like, my grandmother's in the hospital, is she going to die? I'm about to get fired, I think, will I? It's useful to ask slightly less emotionally, physically charged questions to start out. And to begin to have dialogue 
to begin to have conversation and to write it down. Again, if you're writing, if you're seeing visions, describe them, draw them, and then go back and look at it. And what people have reported back to me again and again is that over time, you can almost look through what you've recorded as if there's a, a highlight over certain areas that are really clear and then other places that are fuzzy. So the way that we get in the way begins to become clear and more clear over time. So again, if you've just met someone and you ask, oh, is this the guy I'm going to spend the rest of my life with? There's a really good chance you're getting, going to get in the way. Look for more neutral questions. Mm. Should I plant olive trees in the yard or pear trees or both? Might be a good place to start. I have another uh, listener question before I uh, turn the baton back over to um, my co-host. One listener asks, what is your spiritual practice? Ah, a very good question. When somebody asks me what it is that I am, I say that I am a pagan Hebrew and then I go chronologically by the places I journeyed in. Pagan, Hebrew, Hindu, Buddhist, Taoist, Sufi, Mennonite. And what is my practice? I have a very regular sitting meditation practice that I began in 1969 that has evolved over the years. It was rooted in my first really direct spiritual teacher being Hindu. But all of that floats for me in honoring the integrity of this particular body, which is a Jewish body. Uh, At this moment, since yesterday in Pittsburgh, a Jewish body that is in mourning. So I primarily encounter God as goddess. So I'm often sitting in a synagogue and translating language from a male deity to a female and playing with it and bringing my own focus and intention into spaces where there is a really rich history in Jewish texts of notions of goddess that went underground and surfaced and went underground and surfaced. But looking around my space, this is the part of me that's not very observant to, I'm looking at uh, a statue of the goddess Lakshmi, Technically, in my ancestral tradition, an idol. There's a Ganesha behind me. Uh, so I, I evolve my practice. My meditation altar right now has one rock on it and nothing else. But at other times, it's had kachinas and icons of Mary Magdalene. So the sitting for me is constant. And what happens when I sit changes, evolves, spirals, shifts. And I used to, when I was much younger, feel that I was dabbling in things. 
But at 67, I realized there's something solid there that's multifaceted. And so there isn't one thing. And this is the part of me that's a polytheist. There isn't one thing that could just be my label. Mm. Uh, we do have a couple more uh, listener questions, but I'd like to get to those later. While we're here, I want to make sure we have space um, uh, to really take advantage of this time. David, is there anything um, that you'd like to bring up and discuss uh, while we're all here together? <laughs> How many hours do we have? Um, <laughs> Thirteen hours and we we, we can run over a little bit. We, we don't we don't we don't have to stop at seven sharp. <laughs> I mean, I've been sitting here kind of should I ask this, should I ask that? But I think the question that's really poking at me now is, you know, within two flutes playing, it talks about, um, you know, this this discussion about the role of men who love men and tribes and special role that we have on in this existence and you talk about distraction and you talk about, um, you know, kind of the way that um, sitting in, in quiet and, and, and such will aid you in your ability to connect with spirit. There's, I get a sense from a lot of, um, I'll say gay men or men who love men, that there's almost a feeling of helplessness, there is this calling that they hear, this calling to want to be, you know, agents of change, to fulfill the calling of their spirit. And, you know, our, our world is very different from the world that's described in Two Flutes playing or even, you know, other um, past histories where men who love men have been able to... Um, occupy special roles. So I'm just wondering, what advice do you give to, you know, the average man who loves men out there who says, I have this calling to affect change, to help my neighbor, and yet at the same time I'm overwhelmed with, you know, assassinations in Jewish temples and bombs being sent around and, and all of the things that occupy our 24-hour news cycle. Um, I don't think this is a simple answer, but I'm just wondering if you have any insight and thoughts. Oh, I, I think that there are ways to translate experience and see the spirit beneath it. So as you were talking, the first thing I thought to say to someone is, Put on your favorite music. Take off all your clothes and dance. Invite your neighbors to come and dance. I think one of the very earliest things that human beings did was get together to dance. That may be the very root of community. As someone who was once trained in archaeology, people talk about where communities gathered together in the beginning to make beer, to make wine, to plant crops, to raise wheat. I think we came together to dance. So go dance and think about how much of gay history and queer history happens in dance spaces and in music spaces. And look at that as one of our powers. 
Write music if you can. Play music if you can. Look at the ways in which vibration is a tuning device and a retuning device. And so, uh, are the three of you dancers? Uh, badly, but yes. <laughs> I, I dabble a little. Okay. Badly, I dabble a little, and... Chase's silent on the matter. Chase, are are you with us? Are you a dancer? I'm sorry. I was. I'm sorry. I was on mute. Um, I am not a dancer. I'm an artist. I uh, I look I look like a I, I I unfortunately look rather like an epileptic in a strobe light factory when I'm trying to dance. So that's uh. <laughs> Okay, that's that's a fascinating judgment. Um, um, I am going to do my best to dismantle it. It is essential to dance. Many years ago, my mother worked in a family therapy clinic for paraplegics and quadriplegics, most of whom were either men who had come back from Vietnam or young boys who had been seriously damaged in athletic competitions. And, And people who were born in various ways differently able than, oh my goodness, going to a dance with people in wheelchairs and seeing what people could do is spectacular. I didn't think when I was young I could dance, and I remember my very first boyfriend in 1972 taking me to a dance, and he was, he was studying to be a dancer, and I was terrified, and I stood by the wall, and a man who was very, very old, he was probably 30, um, grabbed <laughs> me and dragged me off to the dance floor and said, honey, all fags can dance. And I was terrified. And he just said, let the vibration enter your body and let it dance you. And I've been dancing ever since. I'm particularly fond of dancing in the living room while Fred Astaire is singing, but that doesn't work for everyone. Fred Astaire may not even be a point of reference to some people. But let it dance you. I like that. It's one of the archetypal pieces of who we are. So I invite everyone to dance and to look at where are the places that our deepest spiritual lives are actually invisible? How holy is it to cook dinner with a friend? In a Christian context, why is the heart of it communion? There's an amazing church in San Francisco, St. Gregory of Nyssa. And one of their deacons is Sarah Miles, who is an incredible lesbian writer, who in the journey of this community created a really large food pantry that meets once a week. And they put food for hungry and homeless people right on the altar of their church. So to me, what's more holy than that? Where are the invisible places where spirit lives happen that we don't recognize? You go to a dance, that is sacred. Um, You're making dinner, that is holy. You're talking to someone, a stranger, 
that's weaving. So we have all of these options, and they're not the things that are usually discernible as, oh, I go to church on Sunday, or I'm sitting in my coven and we're in a circle. Those are really obvious, but the much more interesting ones to me are the ones that are disguised and seemingly invisible. So that's my invitation mm-hmm. to start to look at where does holiness happen that isn't labeled holy you know, in this culture. Andrew, for some reason for me, this this t- actually ties in with one of the questions we received. And, and maybe it's because I, too, you know, I... I, I you know, I'm 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 not I'm not I'm one of those people who's not terribly comfortable dancing, um, and I wonder if it ties into to this question. One of our listeners asked, um, "Why do you suppose gay men have such difficulty allowing their spirituality and inner light to be revealed?" <sighs> oh, that is a good question. a very long history of homophobia, a very long history of being forced underground, a very long history of compartmentalization. There are still cultures you can go to where there are thriving subcultures of men who love men or men who love younger men. But all those men then go home to their wives and children and no one talks about it. So we've gotten compartmentalized. And then we can also look at all the places where so many of the clergymen were men who loved men. Compartmentalized, channeled, disconnected from our bodies, disconnected from the holiness and the intimacy of sexuality and physicality. But there are ways, I think, to redeem that. So I'm going to come back to dance. This is one of my very favorite prescriptions, which is somewhat dated. But I have long invited people to go to YouTube or whatever device you have. I'm so not up on technology. But go find uh, the original music video of Cindy Lauper doing Girls Just Want to Have Fun which is a really subtle and incredibly interesting feminist performance piece. And in its time was, I think, the most elaborate and technologically advanced music video ever made. Take off all your clothes, close all the curtains and drapes, and just dance to Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Hmm. Oh, wow, that sounds like good medicine. Um, we do still have some time and, uh, Chase, do you have, um, any particular questions or, or subjects you want to bring up with Andrew while we're all here together? Um, well, that's such a good answer on my last question. I'm still, I've still been mulling that one over. Um, if you had your, if you had your druthers, what would you like to see, or where do you see the community of men who love men moving forward? They, you know, given that we're living in, you know, living in interesting times, and that you know we're all sort of trying to do the best we can do. You know, if if you had your way, what would you see us doing? I think first, 
I would reflect upon something that we talked about a bit on the retreat, which is creating very clear intergenerational mentorship programs. One of the great tragedies of our time is that post-Stonewall, we were raising up what would have been an entire generation, and now I'll cry, of gay elders. And how many of us died? So we lost a whole core of extraordinary men. But it's time to recreate that consciously, to create mentorship programs, spiritual mentorship programs, pagan, non-pagan, artistic, communal, uh, cooking, dancing, making art. How is it that we can rebuild the torn fabric between our generations so that there are very clear lineages passed on. So for me, the first thing is looking at mentorship programs, looking at everyone. So this is the three of you, and I know in the bit that I know you that this is something that happens in your shared communities. But how is it that everyone is wandering in the world and starting to think, who are my mentees? Who's three or four or 10 or five or 20 years younger than I? So holding ourselves in that space, I think, is really important. And asking something that, to me, reflects upon a report that the UN recently came out with saying that we have 12 years, a very short amount of time, to radically make a difference in what's happening to the environment, the physical environment of this planet. We have 12 years. And so every one of us should be saying, what am I going to do? What do I contribute in these 12 years to joyously, delightfully, sensually, from a place of utterly loving the beauty of planet Earth and all the beings that live here, what is my job? And some of us raise children, and some of us are dancers, and some of us are computer programmers, and some of us are scientists, and some of us are conversationalists. All of us, in a way, are part of the body. This is an image from Jewish mysticism that all of the souls that exist come from different parts of the very primal person. So where do you come from in that primal body? Are you fingers typing? Are you feet dancing? Are you a tongue speaking? Are you eyes looking and taking extraordinary photographs? Are you a brain digesting information? Are you a heart beating? Are you intestines digesting and breaking down? My belief in every guide being angel that speaks to me says every single person alive right now chose to come here in this utterly critical time to make a difference. And what did you come to do? And can you put aside imposter syndrome, doubt, inadequacy? Well, when I finish 40 years of therapy, if I lose 100 pounds, if whatever, and just own, we have 12 years. What did you come to do? Why did you incarnate now?
thank you, Andrew. I'm taking that to heart and and sitting with that um, in this moment. And some of this is answerable. We know in the smallest way what some of you are doing because you're doing this right now. You're sharing information. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for signing up and saying, yes, I will share information. I think the last thing I want to say is because men who love men come from every single other tribe, nation, community, we're innately the ambassadorial core. And since 80 to 90% of the, of the violence that happens on planet Earth is done by men, that's part of our job, to weave into the world of men the universality of consciousness and the capacity for love. And that's some of what the three of you are doing, and I imagine that's what anyone who will listen to this is doing, because otherwise, why would they be listening? So thank you. Before we wrap, before we wrap up, uh, I do want to touch on one last listener question. Uh, someone asked, how do you see um, modern queer men living some of the roles established in two flutes? Are there modern equivalents of some of the roles and, and some of the tribes uh, that are mentioned in the book? One of the limitations of the book is that it was created and channeled in a much more binary time. There's very little reflection on non-binariness. And so as we shift, and open up possibilities, that's a great doorway. And I see again and again how communities of men who love men find each other, come together, share experience in various different kinds of places that did not exist when I was a young man. So I see it happening, and I think the work of the listeners to this conversation is to infuse into those places a spiritual awareness, even if it's done by stealth. Hmm. So to remember, this looks like a disco, but actually it's a holy dance of ground. This looks like a noisy restaurant, but actually every single person who walks in the door is taking communion. What does it mean when we walk into those spaces with that intention? Could we change the energy of an entire restaurant by broadcasting that out? This is a sacred space, kids. And often I walk into places and I feel that and I see that and I notice it. And it's certainly very different than when I was coming of age. And I think of some of my elders who came out often at the same time, but had been out and deeply closeted for, you know, 20 years before. There was an awareness and an intentionality. And on one hand, so much of our spiritual essence is covered over. But on the other hand, it never goes away. And I think just giving ourselves love and permission to be the spiritual beings that we are 
is part of our job to change the world, and I see us doing it. Thanks to many people's extraordinary work, and thanks to what you and your communities are doing. Andrew, thank you very much, not only for taking the time to chat with us today, but for the work that you have done, the work that you're still doing. Um, For our listeners, um, if you haven't done so already, um, I'm sure most of you are online. (laughs) Go ahead, um, look up Andrew Raymer's material on um, Amazon or your favorite bookseller, and keep an eye out uh, for new material that's coming out. Uh, David and Chase, thank you both very much uh, for being co-hosts this evening. Um, It was a pleasure. I love you both. I love you all. And thank you to our listeners. Um, We're going to be back uh, in two weeks. And until then, I'm going to play us out uh, with a song. This is Returning to the Ancient Ways by Circle.